We're going to look at chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. And when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that Jesus was a prophet. So, they answered Jesus, we do not know. He said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go work in our vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said the same. He answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give life and light, that we might understand your word and believe. For Christ's sake, amen. It's a reoccurring theme, I guess, where people ask the question of can we do a thing and not should we do a thing. Social media is one of those great illustrations. Can we do it? Can we make money off of it? How can we make money off of it? How can we tailor it so that we can make the most amount of money off of it? And I'm not mad at any of those questions. Never seem to really stop and ask the question of of should we? And uh, kind of importantly for my intro here, the question of what will happen if we do? What, What are the consequences of doing a thing? What are the consequences of social media? What are the consequences of the world in which we live in? And uh, one of those that we kind of didn't really stop to think about as a culture is how we would begin to think about authority differently. Uh, See, uh, 100 years ago, or prior even, 
Basically, all all sorts of information, all forms of communication went through some sort of kind of gatekeeper vetting process, right? Journalists had standards that they had to meet. Authors had standards that they had to meet. Public speakers had standards that they had to meet. Everything went through a bit of a vetting process. That's why we learn very early on, many of us uh, kind of built on 100, 200, 300 years of educational uh, kind of psychology to appeal to sources when we make claims of knowledge. And so you can't plagiarize, you have to give credit to whoever wrote whatever they did. It's appealing to a source of authority. This scientist said that. This author wrote that. One of the unintended consequences of social media and things like that we didn't think about was that what we did is basically take all of the gatekeepers off of information. All of the people who were responsible for kind of making sure that true and accurate facts made it out, those those people don't have jobs anymore. And now you can go on Twitter and tweet the most absurd thing and pretend like it's true. And guess what? People will believe it because there's no gatekeepers anymore. I suspect that's honestly part of what one of the many things that has made the whole COVID kind of conversation so unbelievably complicated is that it's been very difficult for us to have conversations where we can appeal to an authority because which authority are you appealing to? You've heard them talk about the science. Not sure what that is, but okay. Or my scientists, or your scientists, or my politicians, or your politicians, or which person at the CDC, or which person at that. And we all have these appeals to various authorities. And the problem we run into now in our current world is that none of them are reliable. They all have kind of claims for ultimate truth, but none of them are ultimately reliable. That's very similar in some ways to the situation that Jesus is in at this point in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew has been telling us the story of the great king, the high king, the one who's going to be different from everything that you could have possibly imagined, the one who will rule in uprightness, the one who will rule in justice and truth and goodness, the one who will change not just your hands, but your very heart itself. The one who is comfortable with sinners around him. The one who rebukes those that see no sin in themselves. This part of the book particularly is significant, kind of chronologically timelines what's happening. As we've seen in chapter 21, the triumphal entry happens. That's the beginning. That's Sunday. We know uh, Jesus goes into Jerusalem in this great coronation event, right? All the, the two separate towns and half of Jerusalem enter out so uh, that when he enters into Jerusalem, they have this kind of great uh, happy event. We know the palm trees and the the clothes laid down and the Hosanna, Hosanna, right? He's the the king of David, the son of David. That happens Sunday. He goes to the temple, then goes home Sunday night. Monday, he cleanses the temple, upsets the entire kind of financial market of Jerusalem. Uh, They've set up in the, the court of the Gentiles around the temple, uh, money exchanges where you could buy the form of currency used for your temple tax, where you could buy your pre-approved sacrifices to know that they're blameless. It was a gigantic money-making opportunity for the temple, and he has upset the entire balance. 
At this point, all of Jerusalem is in a tizzy. Everybody's upset. It's uh, the very center of all of the gossip of the town. Everyone in the entire town is talking about this Jesus. Is he really the king? Is he going to kill the Romans? Is he going to free us from bondage? Is he going to establish himself on his throne here in Jerusalem? Well, what kind of king is he? Because he's already throwing all the money makers out of the temple. Is he not going to support the temple? Does he not support the Jews? What kind of king is he? Which brings us to where we are in the text today. Sunday, triumphal entry. Monday, cleansing of the temple. Tuesday, Jesus goes back goes into the temple in verse 23, and we know that he entered into one of the courtyards off to the side and begins to sit and teach. It's a very common practice. This is what rabbis would do. They were teachers, and they would go, and they would teach. It would have been in a very public location, and anybody that wanted to go and sit and listen could have listened. We get the impression that Jesus has gathered quite the crowd as he is at this point exceedingly famous in the town. Everybody wants to know who he is. Everybody wants to know what he's doing. Everybody wants to know what he's saying. What kind of man is he? It's for this reason that the the question that the chief priests and the elders of the people ask in verse 23 is a very common sense sort of question. Now, granted, they're asking it for bad motives. We find that out later. But on the surface, it seems like a really good question. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave it to you? Who gave you this authority? I mean, remember, they just had a coronation event. The kids were saying, Hosanna, this is the Messiah. This is the son of David. And Jesus never corrects them. In fact, actually, he endorses them and says, they're right. The kids got it right. The adults are a little bit slow, but man, the kids nailed it. And then on top of that, he, this poor carpenter's son, this poor homeless traveling rabbi, throws everybody out of the temple, most likely beating them along the way to get them out of the temple so that the temple would be a holy place. It's a good thing that they're asking this question. Who gives you the right? Who gives you the right? Through their response and through Jesus' parable, we see kind of really two aspects to the human heart, to the sinful human heart, that he explains kind of what sin looks like. And it's easy for us to kind of laugh at them because it's so obvious how they get it wrong, but honestly, the thing that they're doing in concept is very similar to what many of us do regularly. Point one, the sinful heart seeks to diminish the authority of Christ Jesus as an illusion for maintaining our own control. It seeks to kind of downplay, diminish Christ's authority in an attempt to kind of maintain our own illusion of control. They ask the question, Jesus, what gives you the right? Who gives you the authority to do this? How can you run people out of the temple? How can you you be crowned king? Who who are you to say that? Jesus is very wise, the wisest man to ever live. He is God. He is wisdom incarnate. 
knows exactly what's going on, and the wise man, Jesus, answers their question with a question, really. All right, I'll answer your question, you answer mine first. He's very wise, he's not going to get trapped. And he asks them a question. Uh, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, as we know him. His baptism, where did it come from? Where did the ministry of John come from? Was it a ministry from heaven or was it a ministry from earth? Where did his authority come from? Now, Jesus' question is not out of left field. In fact, actually, he's taken their very question and kind of turned it just a little bit like a Rubik's Cube to line all the, you know, the colors up right so that you actually see what's really taking place. His question is to, to ask the same kind of question, but with a different person. He's saying, look, if you hate me, you hate what I've been teaching, you hate what I've stood for, let's ask that same sort of question in one who endorses me, in John the Baptist. I love how it kind of, Matthew tells the drama, you can kind of imagine Jesus asking the question and them going, ooh, okay. And then kind of, you know, backing away to huddle to talk it out. Like, okay, what do we, what do we say? I wasn't expecting that. I thought he'd just give us an answer. He wasn't, he'd ask another question. Jesus always answers questions with a question, but okay, fair enough. And you see in their response the thought process of what's going on in their mind as the sinful, unregenerate human heart is explained so clearly. We can't say that John's ministry is from heaven. Because if we say John's ministry is from heaven, John said Jesus' ministry is from heaven. And if we say John's from heaven, then Jesus is from heaven, therefore we have to listen to Jesus. So we can't say that. And I love you get to see, it is so villainous. It's so evil. I mean, this is like a Disney like villain kind of conversation, right? We can't say that he's from heaven because if we say he's from heaven, then Jesus is from heaven. And I, I love what it shows. Look, they're not having a conversation about the truth at all. You realize that, right? Jesus asks them a question about the truth and they answer with marketing. Right? They answer with politics. What do we say? doesn't matter if it's true or not. Can't say it's from heaven, because if we say it's from heaven, then Jesus is from heaven. We can't say that. Because what are they trying to do? They're trying to, in some fashion, they're trying to maintain control. This illusion that they're in charge of things, this illusion that they're in charge of their lives, that they're in charge of other people's lives. Well, okay, we can't say he's from heaven. You know what we better say? We better say he's from earth. And you can imagine one guy saying, well, I can't say he's from heaven. Another guy's like, well, we have to say he's from earth. And you see a third guy going, no, you can't say that either. Because the people love him. Right? The, the masses, they love John the Baptist, and oh yeah, by the way, the masses love Jesus. They just emptied out of the town to try to crown him king. We can't say that he's just a good dude. Right? We can't just say he's just a normal guy. We can't say he's just, you know, ordinary. Because if we do that, we'll lose the ear of the people. 
This is the same kind of conversation that you could imagine taking place these days with, you know, at a big executive boardroom as they're discussing the ratings of, you know, the most recent sitcom. What do we do? People aren't watching. Well, some love it, some don't love it, and trying to, trying to navigate how do we fix this situation where we keep everybody happy and everybody interested and everybody spending money. But there's no conversation about the truth. They're afraid that they will lose the ear of the crowd. So we can't say that he's from earth. <laughs> so they answer verse 27, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they're so right in that, actually, because they've never actually discussed the truth. All they are discussing is marketing. Jesus has put them into a situation where they have to either admit that God is control, God is in control and lose power over their own lives, or they have to admit that Jesus is man and lose power over their crowd. But what he's challenging in their very existence is the illusion of power. And while we can sit here and kind of laugh at them, that they sound like a Disney villain, the reality of what they're actually trying to do is something that I think all of us in here tend to struggle with. The idea of, of trying to kind of perhaps distort our world so that we can increase the perception that I'm in control of my life. That I'm in charge. That I'm the boss of me. I mean, sometimes I know people are like, well, I mean, we really don't really struggle with that that much. Sure, okay. How well do we listen as Americans? I mean, we speak a lot, right? I mean, we talk a lot, way more than we need to talk. How well do we listen? Do you know why we don't listen really well? Because we think we already have all of the answers and all the truth and we're in charge and we're in control and we need to verbalize us because we're the solution, we're not the problem. All those other people, they're the problem. Right? The knuckleheads, the goofballs, what are you gonna call them? They're the problem, I'm the solution. That's in essence what they're doing with Jesus here, and it's intriguing how he's exposing their heart to say, look, what you're actually trying to do is to try to maintain control over your world, over truth, over your reality, by minimizing and diminishing the reality of who Jesus is. One of my professors in seminary used to talk a lot about how uh, one of the big things that was happening at that time, and he said was going to have really tragic consequences in the church, is the creation narrative. The, this true story of Genesis 1 and 2 uh, would be challenged over and over and over again by the church. Because if we stop believing Genesis 1 and 2, we can stop believing that God is in control of my life. We can stop believing that God has the authority to tell me how I'm supposed to live, that God stops having the authority to tell me what the truth of the world actually is. Now, when we believe Genesis 2, as it reads that God made us from dirt and from a rib, 
Well, he's our God. He made us. He has all of the authority to tell me how to live, to tell me who I am to be, to tell me how I am to live. I don't get to be in charge of that. Men are men. Women are women. Sinners are sinful in need of forgiveness. Jesus is the only hope for men and women, boys and girls. There's only one way to heaven. God gets to set those terms, not me. When we lose that creation narrative, we lose that authority in our lives. And it's amazing to see how so much of kind of postmodern existence is one of those shell games. We're kind of moving the truth around, trying to constantly hide it so that we can kind of maintain this illusion that we're in control of the world around us. The amazing thing to me, though, is that how much energy we spend as a nation, how much energy we spend even as individuals trying to maintain that illusion that we're in charge, when literally every day the news confirms the opposite. Literally. We're in control. A building suddenly falls down in Miami with no warning. I think that's pretty clear. You're not in control. We're in control. Tropical storm blows through the beach while we're on vacation. Fairly certain you're not in control. Well, we're in control. That driver cuts you off on the way home, maybe nicks your car. Pretty sure you're not in control. God is. Jesus changes gears. It's not really that much of a change. He switches the style of conversation. He's pinned them to the wall with a really awkward question. Uh, He's bested them uh, in the sword fight of words. And now he presses the offense. He switches to a parable. Uh, Parables were stories. And again, not every single detail in the parable is designed to carry the meaning. And the meaning is usually fairly obvious if you're willing to study it. But not every little detail matters. Here he switches to kind of go on the offense, to take their refusal to admit his authority, to take their illusion of control and to to really begin to shatter it, to showcase their heart. He tells a parable of a man who owns a vineyard and two sons at least. Nothing else really matters between those two. He has two boys. He goes to the first and says, go work in the vineyard. You can see, I love it, how this sounds just like parents talking to their children today, doesn't it? Right? So much just like parents talking to their kids today. Go clean your room. Nah, I don't think so. I think I should probably clean my room. It's a really bad idea to tell mom that and then go clean their room, right? The other kid's like, sure, I'll clean my room. Sure. Nope, I'm not going to. Right? Just like today, I love it. 2,000 years ago sounds like yesterday. The man talks to his two boys, tells them both to go work in the vineyard. The first one says no, goes anyways. After his mind is changed, the second one says yes, never goes. Pretty obvious story. Very clear illustration. Then Jesus lowers the boom in verse 31 with a question. Which one of these is actually obedient? Which one of these two sons does what the father tells him to do? And it's the obvious answer. Not the one who says something but never actually does anything. It's the child who even though he at first said no and was disrespectful to his father, he did it anyways. 
they're kind of trapped. They don't really have a better answer to give here if they're going to give any answer at all and save face. So they give the right one. And the first one, the boy who says no, but then does it anyways, that's the one who does the will of the Father. Jesus then calls them out and says, in light of that, what kind of people are the people that go to heaven? Is it the people who say all the right things, but have no substance behind them? Or is it the people that are a mess, and sometimes downright wicked, but have the right reality beneath? You see, this is the second thing then where he begins to explain them, showing that the sinful heart loves to talk a big game, but has no follow-through so that no sacrifice is required. You see, this is, again, a reality, I think, that is very common, particularly in the South, in America, where we have so much of a post-Christian kind of culture with so much of the Christian vocabulary, where we have hearts that like to run their mouths about how Christian we are. But have no follow-through, no sacrifice. No substance to the reality. My favorite story of this is, uh, I know I've told it many times, it makes me laugh every time. Uh, When I was at Covenant College, I was a student at our denominational college. Uh, My roommates and I were heavily connected with the admissions office, and so when uh, high school seniors or juniors would come up to the campus to visit the campus, they would stay in our room uh, for the weekend or for the week or whatever, and we would... uh, kind of entertain them and you know, show them the campus and take them to class and various things. And it was a, a great recruiting tool. We enjoyed it. Uh, we got to meet new friends of students that would most likely be there next year. And just, it was generally an all-around good time. And I remember one guy in particular who came and proceeded for the first two full days brag about how brilliant he was at basketball. Ran his mouth the whole time. How he could dunk how he could shoot, how he, I mean, just brilliant basketball player. Now, what he didn't know was that two of my roommates were very good basketball players, but okay, fair enough. And after about 48 hours of it, they finally snapped and were like, okay, we can't take it anymore. We're going to the court. Like, the guy won't shut up. All he's doing is talking about how good of a basketball player he is. Great. So they go out to the court, you know, my roommates are running up over, they pass in the ball for him to shoot a free throw, and he grabs it and just over his head like a soccer throw in, off the front of the rim so hard it bounces off to the next court, and he's like, man, that was close. And they're like, what is going on? Come to find out, he doesn't actually know how to play basketball at all. He's terrible. Like, awful. He's worse than me. I mean, he's terrible at basketball. It's 48 hours of running his mouth about how brilliant he was, but then when you actually get on the court, there's no substance to any of his boasts. It was just empty words. Lies told to make himself feel better because he was insecure. The problem is the Pharisees are doing that with their love for God. 
They're talking about it all of the time. It, it consumes what's on the front of their mind, but the reality is there's no substance behind it. They don't know God. They just talk about Him. It's why, I was talking with Chad about this even this morning, it's why giving new member interviews to the children of this church is the hardest. Because I'm terrified that we're going to raise people that know how to talk about Christianity, but don't know the Christ of Christianity. So I push, make those kids uncomfortable, force them to answer tough questions to see if there's something substantial behind the words. Friends, the danger is for you, not just your children, that we live in a world that likes to talk about spirituality, likes to talk about spiritual things. It doesn't even really talk about Christian things anymore, but misses the substance behind it. And the reason being, and this is, I mean, this is so important, in the last really 25 years, the American church has substituted our feelings for this book. So when we go to talk about spirituality now, when we go to talk about Christianity now, we talk about how we feel instead of talking about what is true. And I'm not saying your feelings are unimportant. God made them. I mean, he invented them. They're pretty important because they're part of his image. But your, your, your feelings, your emotions are, are not the ultimate reality. In fact, they lie to you. In fact, they lie to you far more than anything else in your world. This is the one thing that doesn't lie to you. God and his truth giving us that which is ultimately dependable. You see, that's the Pharisees' problem here in this passage is one, they're, they're, they're doubting God, uh, Jesus' authority to say anything, and he's wrecked them by saying, look, what you're exposing is just a, a vain attempt to try to maintain some sort of control over your life. And he's exposed them for talking a big game but having no ability, no substance, and no reality. And in verses 31 and 32, he just flat out offends them. By explaining what the reality, what the heart of Christianity actually looks like. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, those two categories of people were the two worst categories of people that could be named. Tax collectors were those that were traitors to their own nation. They would have been, it would have been in the, the equivalent of being in the South in 1864 and trying to collect taxes for the North, right? Really doesn't go over friendly with the neighbors. They would have been viewed as traitors to their nation and hated for it. Prostitutes, well, self-explanatory. Two categories of people that would have been more hated, more despised, and more of a, a picture of evil than any other category you could imagine. 
Right, today it would probably be like prostitutes and politicians. That's what we would put instead, right? And Jesus says to them, look, these categories of bad people, they go to heaven before you. Because just as the son did in the parable, they changed their mind on Jesus. Rather than rejecting him and staying rejecting, they rejected him and went, nope, you know what, I was wrong. And they begin to listen and begin to follow. In fact, actually, it's one of the things that makes the Pharisees so uncomfortable. You think about it really awkwardly as he's telling this story, how many tax collectors and prostitutes had to have been in the crowd right around him, right? Well, former tax collectors and former prostitutes, how he could have been like, look, she's going to heaven before you because she's listened and she's received the mercy of God, whereas you have not. You talk, you control, but you do not believe. You see, this should be in many ways comforting for God's people, for we find that what Jesus is instead is explaining the nature of Christianity. The heart of the Christian is one who has devotion to the Lord, despite fits and starts. Right? Some of you, be very encouraged. You grow discouraged and grow weary because your heart is cold or your heart is hard or your heart is slow or it's prone to wander. Your desires are constantly pulling you away. The Lord knows his steadfast love endures forever. The danger, again, is where we've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks now. The danger is for those of us that are comfortable defining Christianity, defining salvation, and defining heaven as something that is given to good people. Friends, if you have to be good to get salvation, you will never get it. I've been your pastor long enough to know. And I will never get it because I've been myself long enough to know. You see, the the important thing in understanding Christianity is the order of goodness and salvation. Salvation has to come first to produce goodness, not goodness producing salvation. You see, that's what Jesus is ultimately getting at with the Pharisees is they've got all of the order backwards where they're thinking their goodness, their control, their perfection, their righteousness is going to handle them just fine. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. The gospel is for people who are bad, who need help, who can be saved, and then be made good. I would end simply with this challenge. Friends, many of us, I think, probably been in the church quite a long time. And it's quite easy for us to kind of subconsciously, subtly, quietly begin to reverse that order. I mean, to to really kind of begin to, just in the back of our minds, switch that to say, you know what, I, I belong here because I'm a good person. And what that does is it creates a sense of entitlement, but it also robs you of the joy of the ministry of Jesus. And think about it from this perspective. 
whichever category of person you despise the most, if they came in here and filled up all these front rows and we had 40 new people in the church next Sunday of the category you despise the most, would your heart be overflowing with joy at what Jesus is doing? Or would you be saying, they can't be here because they're not good yet? I'd love to pretend like we wouldn't do that, but I guarantee you I would have phone calls on Monday where we would be saying, Pastor, did you see those people? Did you see them? How dare they be here? They're not good like us. Yeah. They're probably better. Might it be that we would just take a little bit of time periodically and, and, and reevaluate how much that snuck into our thoughts to think that we're the good ones instead of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your steadfast love in him. Forgive us for our pride. We have so much of it. Thank you for the work of your spirit who will heal us of it. For Christ's sake, amen.